Uh, we are in uh, a series right now through the book of John called uh, Rescued. Uh, we're in John chapter 6 today, so if you want to you wanna go to that, go ahead. We're going to be covering uh, one of the most famous stories uh, in the Bible, and it's the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, uh, you, you've, you've probably, like, you don't even have to be religious to, to have heard of the feeding of the 5,000, but we're going to find out in reading in John today that the 5,000 was actually just the men not including women and children. So if there was one man and, and one woman for, excuse me, if there was one child and one woman for every man, then there were 15,000 people that Jesus is going to feed with one little boy's sack lunch. Uh, or or possibly, actually, we'll get to that in a minute. Could, could have been a sack lunch. He could have actually brought it because he was trying to sell it to other people. Homeboy had like a little bit of entrepreneur streak in him, maybe. we don't Because that was a lot of food for a little boy. It was five loaves of bread and two fish. I don't know if that little boy could have finished all that. So I don't, anyway, there's theories. That's all I'm saying. Um, 15,000 people. But truthfully, in the life of Jesus, in the ministry of Jesus, which started approximately around the age of 30, that, that, that culminated in his death, burial, and resurrection three years later, this was the high point of his popularity. Um, if, if they were taking polls, right now Jesus is crushing all other contenders for Messiah. There's nobody else even close. When Jesus shows up in a community, everybody for miles and like throngs, I don't get to use that word very often, throngs of people followed the man everywhere he went. Crazy popular. Now, John the Baptist, we'd already talked about him in the series that we finished a few weeks ago, had kind of set the stage and had become very well known, almost like celebrity type. And then when Jesus showed up, John the Baptist identified Jesus as the one that he'd been talking about all of this time. So all of the crowds that had been following John the Baptist now began following Jesus. So right when Jesus got started off, there was already a large group of people that went with him everywhere he went. But I don't know if you've ever wondered this. Now, Jesus had 15,000 people at the feeding of the, we call it the feeding of the 5,000. That's because the only number we were given, I already told you this, is just the guys. But truthfully, there were more than that. Um, in that culture, women and children didn't count. That's just the way that it was. I'm sorry. Like, that's, that's, they, just, they didn't have a vote. They couldn't own property. And, and children actually didn't, weren't even a higher status than, than household servants in, in those days. They didn't step into their own until they, be, they became a, a, a man or an adult. Or, and, and the women even were worse. They didn't become like a real person until they were married. And even then, it was just partial. So one of the neat things about Jesus is the way that he elevated women in, in his circles. And truthfully, wherever Christianity thrives, women's rights also thrive. And that's, that's true throughout history in every country where Christianity has begun to thrive over the last, last 2,000 years. But in those days, that wasn't the way that it, that it normally was. So Jesus had 15,000 people at this miracle feeding here. And then just 18 months later, if you read the first chapter of the book of Acts, you see uh, that Jesus had just left the disciples, and there's only 120 of them meeting together, praying in the upper room. The upper room is where Jesus had had the Last Supper that's made famous by the painting of Da Vinci. That's where the disciples kind of made their headquarters after Jesus left them. So how do you go from 15,000 to 120? I wouldn't call that success. Would you? Like Grace Church got started on our very first Sunday ever, we had 85 people show up. And three, like, like I think 50 of them were, were visiting from other churches in the area who were helping us get started. And I say that because the second week we had 35. So that was in November, the first Sunday of November in, in 2005. We had 85. The second Sunday we had 35. By Christmas we were all the way up to 19. Bro, we were killing it. Like, like, like if I'm looking at Jesus' model of church growth, I was doing it right. Because he went from 15,000 to 120. How was that a success in anybody's book? Like if, if, if you had one point, like I, I, I don't know, like if you had like 20 franchises, the last time I saw you at our family, or, or the, the class reunion, and then 10 years later, I'm like, hey man, how's that business? I'm a, and, and you're down to two franchises? I would think you blew it along the way. Is that what you would assume, yes or no? So how does Jesus go? What, like, what happened? I'll tell you what happened. Today happened. John chapter 6 happened. That's what happened. 
Now, the feeding of the 5,000 is famous, but it was the next day, it was the day after the feeding of the 5,000 where the poop hits the fan, and Jesus was the one who threw it in it, metaphorically speaking, right? Like, he's the one who intentionally set the stage that caused the majority of his followers to abandon him from then on. Now, I, I truthfully didn't want to cover this part. I, I just wanted to do the first part of John 6 today. I didn't want to do the second half because the first half is it's all nice and it's easy and it's, it's, it's a story. I love stories. It's the feeding of the 5,000 and they were hungry and a little boy came up with a sack lunch and, you know, I can make jokes about the sack lunch, you know, where everybody else was and lunch ladies and, like, my mind just starts, like, like just going through all these different options of things I could just, like, throw out in the middle of it. Like, that'd be a lot of fun, right? But then, like, but then, like, everything that he said the next day is completely awkward and uncomfortable, and, and, and truthfully, I've never heard a sermon on the second half of it. Now, that doesn't mean nobody's preached on it. Dude, there's been 2,000 years worth of sermons and hundreds of thousands of churches around the world at any given time. I know this is covered all the time. It's just I'd never heard a sermon on it, and I definitely hadn't preached on it, so I was going to skip it, um, but then I, I saw that as cowardice in my own heart, and I was like, no, I mean, if Jesus said all these things, there's probably something in here that we should get, even if I don't know what it is yet. So this week has been a learning process for me where I had to figure out why did Jesus say the things that he said if he knew that the overwhelming majority of everybody would abandon him after he said it. So there was a, I knew that I had a lot of work to do. And truthfully, I'm a little bit nervous. My concern, Taylor asked me yesterday, he said, is there anything I can do to help you out? I was like, you can pray. I said, I feel like, I, like I'm afraid that I may have bitten off more than I can chew this weekend. So um, what I'm wanting you to do is I'm wanting to find yourself in a story. And we're going to be reading a few things that Jesus says to the group of people. And I want you to ask yourself, is that true of me also? Am I like that? Do I see God that way? Is that, is that the motive behind my interest in religion? Like, I, like, Truthfully, I can't judge anybody because as I went through this passage of Scripture, I recognize that today uh, I'm, I'm, I'm the guilty person. Now, if I'm only allowed to talk about the things I'm, I'm innocent of, we ain't going to have much church. All right? So you've got to allow me to be the biggest hypocrite in the room. But he said it, so I'm, teaching, I'm going to be teaching this on the authority of Jesus, not the authority or example of Sean, because I've got work to do also. Now, there was something that Jesus said that taken literally means something completely different than what he meant by it metaphorically, all right? Like or as, that's a metaphor, right? Or is that an allegory? You guys are just as dumb as me, and that's why I love you. <laughs> That is why I love this church. Ain't nobody know. Nobody knows. All right. It's a semi-metaphor. Gory. That's what it is. It's a metaphor gory. And he says it, and uh, he didn't mean it. He, he knew that they would misunderstand it literally, and, and that was okay with them. Because if, 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 they, if God's Holy Spirit wasn't working in their heart, they weren't going to wrestle with what he was trying to say and how it applied to their life. But if God's Holy Spirit was drawing them to faith in, in Jesus, then they, they would wrestle with it. And it would, it would force them into a place where they couldn't pick any shade of gray. They were going to have to pick right or wrong, up or down, in or out. You can't stay on the fence any longer, not after what he said. Now, when I was in sixth, seventh grade, there was a girl named Elizabeth, and Elizabeth was an eighth grader. And Elizabeth was, she was very pretty, but she was very aggressive. She was, she was 14 going on 40. I was 13 going on eight or nine. I've, I'm a late bloomer. I'm still a late bloomer. <laughs> People, when they find out how old I am, they say, wow, I didn't think you were that old. And it has nothing to do with my looks. It has everything to do with the way I behave. <laughs> Well, I, I've been that way since I was a kid. What's, what's wrong with you? Nobody else your age acts this way. And I'm like, I know. That was at my wedding. Um, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so Elizabeth kind of put it out there. Now, she was, she was really into boys, and I was not into girls. I'm, I'm a late bloomer. I, I didn't, like, I had, like, a little bit of scruff on my chin that I could shave as a senior. But truthfully, if I never shaved it, nobody would have complained. 
right? Like I didn't actually start shaving in, until college, so I wasn't really into, like I, but like I got, I got good talking game, right? Like I can, I can talk. So homeboy flirted like a madman. Like you'd have thought, wow, man, that, that kid's got game with the ladies. But I was all talk, no rock. Right? Like, I, I, I could talk a good game, but if the girl, like, started flirting back, I was like, oh, I got to go now. Right? Like, <laughs> I didn't know what to do from there. Like, I, right? I was like, I was like, completely intent. Like, so Elizabeth was really pretty, and so, like, I flirted a little bit, and then she kind of put it out there that she really liked me, and I'm like, oh, okay. Like, I did the exact same thing, just kind of backed off, and, and uh, she didn't quite ask me to ask her out, but it was like she was like saying that, but not saying that. And so I was playing dumb because I didn't want to do. I didn't want a girlfriend. Like I like flirting with them because they're pretty, but I don't want to actually touch them because they're gross. <laughs> they're girls, right? They got cooties and all that kind of stuff. So that's kind of like the stage of development I was in. And so she straight up told me one time that I was being slow. She said, you're slow. Like what she meant was, is I, I was dragging my feet when it came to girls and I wasn't a fast mover. And that chick was fast. And truthfully, in the whole scheme of my life, it's probably a good thing me and Elizabeth didn't hook up. My whole, oh, that sounded bad. I'm just saying it's a good thing that Elizabeth and I never dated or remind, like, never mind. I'm just going to move past this. And she started calling me slow boy. Now, the first time she called me slow boy was in, a part, was in the uh, basketball court behind our church at the time. So my dad was a preacher, which meant that we never left church on time. He would stay and talk to everybody in the world. Um, I never do that. That's a lie. My poor kids. They bring video games to church because they know they're going to need them afterwards. Um, but, uh, so I'm in the parking lot and I'm shooting baskets waiting on my mom and dad to come out of church and Elizabeth, her dad was a deacon or something. So he was sticking around after church too. So she was out in the parking lot and she called me slow boy. And the first time she called me slow boy, I didn't get what she said. I interpreted it literally. And I'm like, I'm not slow. Look how fast I am. And I ran and did a layup because I'm an idiot. So she kept calling me slow boy, and, and I, I picked up on it pretty quick, but I kept, I kept playing, playing, playing dumb. So my point is, is that she meant, like, what she said, literally interpreted, meant one thing, but what she actually meant had nothing to do with what she actually said. Does that make sense? It's the exact same scenario that we see in John chapter 6. Jesus says something that literally interpreted not only does it make any sense, but it's a violation of the laws of God, right? But it's not what he meant. So there were people who were offended because it sounded like he was asking them to violate the laws of God. So anybody who was interested in staying in this conversation, he stayed in the conversation with. They pushed back, he responded. He waited. More people left, but the ones that stayed that kept asking questions, as long as they were interested in keeping the conversation going, anybody who wanted clarity found clarity. So much so that when it got to the end, there's no way in the world they could misunderstand what he meant. And when they finally figured out what he actually meant, it was no less offensive. And they abandoned him. Now, both scenarios, the front part of John 6 and the second part of John 6, both talk about food. What we want versus what God wants is the theme behind John chapter 6. Does God exist to make our lives better or do we exist for his purposes? Does God exist for our purposes or do we exist for his? Is God's job to work for our good and our glory or is our job to work for God and his? Now, be careful how you answer because you're in church on a weekend. You're probably going to say we exist for God's glory, even if you're only a little bit religious. But Jesus kind of cuts through to help you and me determine if that's really true or not. So it starts with actual food, and it ends with a metaphor about food. So John chapter 6. After this, Jesus crossed over to the far side of the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Tiberias, and a huge crowd kept following him wherever he went because they saw his miraculous signs as he healed the sick. So John wanted to point out here as he's telling this story the motive behind the crowds following Jesus. 
He could have just said everywhere that Jesus went, there was a large group of people. But what he wanted us to know is they had an agenda for following Jesus. Their agenda for following Jesus was to see more miraculous signs. It wasn't because they were looking for Messiah. It wasn't because they were ready to be reconciled to God. It wasn't because they recognized they were disconnected from God because of their rebellion against him and their selfishness towards others. It had nothing to do with God and his kingdom purposes. It had everything to do with theirs and their entertainment. They followed Jesus for their own selfish purposes, not because they were interested in God's kingdom purposes. And John starts off the chapter by saying, I want you to know that their motivation for being disciples and followers of Jesus was off. Now, truthfully, we're going to get to a place where some of us are going to be offended by the words that Jesus said. And John is setting the stage and letting us know in what area of our lives God's going to push his thumb. He's going to push his thumb in on the bruised part of our heart, the selfish part, the part that plays the religious game as long as it benefits our life. But the moment our faith becomes inconvenient to us, we back away from it until we find a safe distance where we can keep living our lives based on our agenda without being inconvenienced by God and his agenda. So truthfully, nothing's changed in 2,000 years. We're still interested in Jesus for the same reasons. Like, I'll be religious if what? Some of us, we started coming back to church because our wife left us. And so we figure if I go score some Jesus points, he'll do what? Bring your wife back. Or we found out we got cancer. Or we found out, or we're struggling with, or we want more of. So then we start checking off religious check, mark, check boxes. So we're interested in religion for what religion gives us. It feels good to give to Haiti. We don't give to Haiti because it's for the glory of God and the good of others. It makes me feel good about spending everything else I make on me. Does that make... Does anybody... <laughs> You guys got real quiet. I don't know how to take this. Someone's about to throw something at me. I'm guilty too, all right? Like none of us in this room are innocent of this. All of us, I think, by default are selfish. We come out of the womb like the birds in Nemo. Mine, 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 mine. Remember that? You don't have to teach a kid to take. You have to teach a kid to, to give, to share. You don't have to teach a child to lie. You have to teach them to tell the we're, we're born selfish. We're born with our backs turned towards God. It's our default setting. And so John's just pointing that out. That even in our following Jesus, most often, at least for this crowd, it was for what they were going to get out of it. Keep going. Verse 3, then Jesus climbed a hill and sat down with his disciples around him. We find out from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who also give us the, feeding, the story of the feeding of the 5,000. But Jesus had just found out this morning that his best friend and cousin, who was six months older, John the Baptist, had been beheaded by Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas had invited John the Baptist, who I already told you was a celebrity, into his palace to give a sermon. And in this sermon, he asked for clarification on sin. And so John the Baptist said, well, for instance, you're having sex with your brother's wife. <laughs> he hadn't read that book, How to Make Friends and How to Win Friends and Influence People yet. Dale Carnegie, that, would, that book would have helped him out just a little bit. Homeboy led with that. That was point number one in his sermon, is that you're cheating with your brother's wife. That, so he ends up being arrested for this. He ends up being beheaded. On the day that Jesus finds out that he's been murdered, he just wants to get some space. He's got his disciples, he's on a hillside, and he's talking to them privately. We don't know what he was talking to them about. It could have been about his sadness. It could have been on the importance of the life, the influence, the impact that one life has, if it's lived well or leveraged for the glory of God and the good of others, like my cousin John. Who died? Maybe he was just breaking the news to the disciples what had happened. We don't know what he talked about. But he's on the hill talking to them. And as he's talking to them, a group of people, verse 4, it was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration, and Jesus soon saw a huge crowd of people coming to look for him. 
Now, John skips right over the rest of the entire day and goes like at the end of that sentence, who came to look for him, and the next word is turning. In between that is about 12 hours of Jesus healing everybody who'd been coming from all of the surrounding towns. Now, we know this from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John skips right past that and goes straight to the end of the day. The next phrase in John chapter 5 is, turning to Philip, he asked, where can we buy bread to feed all of these people? Which was the rational person, the person that makes sense to ask this. This is Philip, they're near Bethsaida, and, and, and Philip is from Bethsaida. I mean, Peter and Andrew were also, but he looks over at Philip and he goes, hey, you're from around here, where's the quickest? Tedeschi's. Right? Where's the CVS? Where, where, like, like, where can we go? I don't know. It's like 24. Like, it's late. Grocery stores are closed. Where can we go to get food? Who, where can we buy food? He was testing Philip, verse 6, for he already knew what he was going to do. Philip replied, even if we worked for months, we wouldn't have enough money to feed them. Or your translation, what it actually says in Greek here is that even if we had 200 denarii, it wouldn't be enough, which was about, if multiple, of, you made one denarii a day. About So 200 denarii would be several months worth of work. He said, even if we worked for months, we wouldn't have enough food to feed everybody. Now, where did he come up with that, that number, 200 denarii? Scholars aren't exactly sure. It's possible. Like they did, the Bible said that Judas's job, he was the most trusted of all the disciples because he was the one that they elected to keep the money bag. <laughs> they were a serious bad judge of character. But they did have a money bag, so they did have financial resources so that when they came into a town, they didn't have to take advantage of anybody else's charity. So they had resources. So some scholars think that maybe he said 200 denarii because that's how much they had in their bag. 200 denarii's worth. So even if we had, you know, even if we use the money that we've got, it's not enough. So we can't really do anything, Jesus. Have you ever done that? Have you ever come up to a place in your life where the situation looked hopeless and you're just like, you know what, it's just... So like you didn't really pray to God about it. You didn't even really work. Or you, didn't, you, didn't, you, just, you got discouraged. The job's too big. It's too hopeless. So you stopped praying. You, you stopped trying. And you just gave up. Have you ever been there? Like you ever, something bothers you and you pray and you pray and you pray. And it just keeps getting worse and it keeps getting worse. And you talk and you ask for advice and counsel. And you just get to the point of hopelessness where you just go, screw it. You don't even pray about it anymore. You just resigned yourself to the fact that this is just the way, it's always going to be this bad. It's never going to get better. See, I, I think that, that that trait is common in us. I don't think you're the only one that struggles with that. Philip is sitting next to God in the flesh and goes, we don't have enough coin from Rome to get enough food for everybody. Saying this to the one who created the entire world. But this is probably too much for you to do. So we probably shouldn't even try. That's where he was at. It's, I, I don't see how we can work this out. And I think that's kind of how we approach our relationship with God, to be honest with you also. It's not that we come to God with open hands and an open agenda. We have an agenda. It's just that we need God to bless our plans. We're not interested in him rewriting the ones we've already got. Right? God, I want you to bless my path. I don't want you to redirect my path. Because what if God's direction of my path led toward me, what? Letting go of this carrot you've been chasing on the end of that stick for how long? Like, you have a carrot. You have something that you think is going to make your life meaningful, valuable, or happy that you're chasing. And what we really do want is we want God to bless our plans. We're not willing for God to change our plans. Or am I the only one who's like that? So it's hopeless. I don't even, like, okay, this isn't working. So we don't go, God, what should we do now? Change my life. Do whatever you want. If you want me to go through this pain, I'll go through this pain. Just redeem this pain. We just go, screw it. I'm going to be this miserable forever. I want to be this unhappy. We become hopeless and we give up. Even 200 denarii isn't enough. So just send them home. We, there's nothing we can do. That was the test. What happens when you can't figure it out, Philip? What happens then? 
You got your plans, you got your agenda, but what happens when your agenda doesn't work out? Then what are you going to do? So God puts him in a scenario where he can't figure out the end of the story to see what he's going to do. And he failed the test. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up and said, there's a little kid here with five barley loaves and two fish, but what good is that among a huge crowd? So Andrew's like, well, all right, I'll try something, but probably not going to work anyway. Jesus then says, tell everyone to sit down, Jesus said. So they all sat down on the grass. Uh, The men alone numbered about 5,000. Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks to God, and distributed them to the people. And afterward, he did the same thing with the fish, and they all ate as much as they wanted after everyone was full. So it's not like they rationed it out. Everybody got to eat as much as they wanted. Um... After everyone was full, verse 12, Jesus told his disciples, now gather the leftovers so that nothing is spared. So they picked up the pieces and filled 12 baskets with scraps left by the people who had eaten from the five barley loaves. So for every disciple that doubted Jesus, what he could do with one kid's little sack lunch, Jesus gave them an entire basket of leftovers as a reminder what I can do. I'll, I'll show you what I can do. Like, it, like it, Seriously. Here's the thing. If you don't give anything to God, God's got nothing to work with. If you don't make yourself available to him, he's not going to work. He's not going to do anything. You haven't offered anything. You haven't made yourself available. You've blocked him out. God is completely content to let you block him out. You don't want him in? Fine. He's not threatened by your lack of faith. God is not up in heaven freaking out because you don't believe in him. He's more secure in his identity than we are. He'll offer, he makes himself available, he'll draw, but at some point you've got to decide whether or not you believe God enough to actually trust him. And then your choice that you make then, God's completely content to let you live with the consequences of that. When the people saw him do this miraculous sign, verse 14, they exclaimed, surely he's the prophet we've been expecting. When Jesus saw that they were going to take him by force to be their king, he slipped away into the hills by himself. How do you slip away from a thronging crowd of (laughs) 15,000? That's like that story we talked about last week with Jesus in Nazareth, where they took him out to the edge of the cliff to throw him overward. And when he got to the edge of the cliff, he just turned around and goes, no, not today. Same thing, 15,000 people about to force him to be king, and he just goes, now I'm going to go for a walk, and none of you guys are going to follow me. And he turns around and walks away, and nobody follows him. They just stay there. That's what happens now. Then there's the, the, the Jesus walking on the water to the disciples. That's next. We're going to skip it and go down to, verse, down to verse 25, because the next day, they're in Capernaum. The disciples had gotten there. Jesus walked out to the disciples on the water, got in their boat, and got there. Now, the day before, they had come to Bethsaida in two boats, and everybody saw that there were two boats there. Half the disciples and Jesus were in one, and half the disciples were in the other. And when they left, they saw the disciples get in the boat and leave. They saw Jesus go up into the hill, so they think Jesus is going to be wherever that extra boat is. So they saw the boat the next morning. This is in the passage of Scripture ahead of this. They saw the boat in the morning, so they thought Jesus was around there. But when they couldn't find him anywhere around, they went to his home base, which was Capernaum, and they found him there. So in verse 25, it says, they found him on the other side of the lake, and they asked him, Rabbi, how did you get here? Like, your boat is still back there. How, like, you left your car at the mall. How did you make it home? Essentially is what they were asking. Jesus doesn't really answer that question at all because he knows that that isn't the most important thing for them to be talking about right now. It's how he, like, like I'm, I'm not going to tell you. Like, I, I know that you guys are curious, but I'm not going to tell you about the walking on the water. I'm not going to tell you about the storm. I'm not going to tell you about the peace be still. I'm not going to tell you about any of that. What I want to do is I want to talk about why you took the time to come all the way over here. Because none of you guys are actually interested in what I, he, I came here to do. And that's what he points out to them. So what he does is, he takes his finger and he pokes him in the eye with it. Verse 26, Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, you want me because I fed you, not because you understand the miracles. You're not here for what I want. You want me for what you want. Your goal is to manipulate religion to make your physical, tangible life right now more comfortable. But the truth is, if you had to die to yourself to follow me, if you had to live, if you had to give up anything to follow me, you'd abandon me. 
If your faith actually cost you something, then would you still have it? He says to them, not them, no. You guys aren't here for what I'm here for. You're using me to manipulate your circumstances. Truthfully, how many of us are here to manipulate God to do what we want? I, I put on Instagram this past week a friend of mine. His name is James Robertson. He pastors a church. and Actually, he's a church planting pastor of Bridge Church in New York City. He just put on Facebook, and I made like a little meme out of it because I thought it was good with his face on it. But he, he said, be careful that we don't use prayer to get our wishes instead of to govern our lives. And I had to think about that for a minute. Because if I'm going to evaluate the way that I talk to God, it has less to do about his authority and direction for my life than it does for God to bless my life and my plans for it. I'm just as guilty as these people is what I'm saying. I use God. I use church. I use prayer. I use people to get more from me. I'm probably not the only one guilty of this. But don't be concerned, he says in verse 27, about perishable things like food. Spend your energy seeking the eternal life that Son of Man can give you. Quit leveraging spiritual things to get material things and start leveraging your material things for spiritual things. You're sacrificing the rest of eternity to make the next 50 years more comfortable. Bro, that's a bad trade. But if you truly trusted God, if you really did believe you would spend eternity in the presence of God or eternity separated from God in hell, if you really did believe in God, you would gladly trade your comfort for the next 50 years to be hooked up for the rest of eternity. But the reason why we don't is that truthfully, we don't trust God. We don't. Religion is a means to another end. Jesus isn't the pathway to the end. For God, um, spend your energy, this is the last part of verse 27, seeking the eternal life that the Son of Man can give. For God the Father has given me the seal of his approval. That's the purpose for these miracles. These miracles are the, to authenticate the reason why I came. Not to make your life more comfortable. Then they replied, we want to perform God's works too. Then what should we do? What do I need to do? I was sitting with a group of friends last night. And the question was, how are you doing in your relationship with God? And one of the things that I noticed is that our relationship with God was measured in each one of our hearts by the amount of spiritual things we were doing. How are you doing in your relationship with God? Your question is going to be based on how much church you get, how much prayer you make, right? How many rules you keep. Like, what's, what's the works of God? What do I need to do so that I can be right with God? That's the thing. Most religions of the world have their version of the answer to that question. Do this, 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 and this, and this. And if you do these things, you'll tip the scales in your favor. That's what they were asking. How do I tip the scales? Not even because their motivation is right. They're still looking at religion as a means to an end. Are you with me? But how do I tip the scales? Jesus said, you know what the work of God is? And he gives them the answer to this in verse 29. Jesus told them, this is the only work that God wants from you. Believe in the one he sent. Because you can't fix you. Because what's most broken in you is on the inside. And nothing from the outside is going to take care of that. But if you'll change your heart, if you'll come to the place where you believe in me, where you will remove you and your agenda out of the center of your life around which everything else revolves and put me and my agenda in the middle of that, that's the work that you can do that would please God. Because if truthfully your life revolved around the person of Jesus and his words, 
then you wouldn't have to worry about the checklist anymore. Because the whole agenda would be different. It wouldn't be about keeping score with God. As if you could ever score enough points that he would owe you. If God called you to lay down your life, you would lay down your life. To give up your career, to pursue something else, you would. Truthfully, somebody in this church needs to move to Haiti and help them start churches. Somebody in here needs to be our next church planter. But you ain't going to make as much money if you do that as you are now. But somebody in here, God's calling in the ministry. I don't know. Surely out of this many people, you see what I'm saying? We're not interested in God and His agenda. We're interested in getting Him to help us with ours. You know what the work God requires of you to do is? Quit living for you and your glory and start living for Him and His. Here's their response. And I don't know how Jesus didn't go, just think and go off on everybody after this. Look at the next verse, verse 30. They answered, well, show us a miraculous sign if you want us to believe in you. What? I fed you guys as many Big Macs as you wanted yesterday, and you're going to ask for another sign? I spent all day yesterday. I healed your grandma. And you're going to ask for another stinking sign? (laughs) How did he not lose it? Everybody that needed anything yesterday, he stayed all day long on the day his best friend died. Meeting their needs, and it wasn't enough. I want more, I want more, I want more. (laughs) Oh gosh, if I was Jesus, I would just, oh, I would. Oh, Sodom and Gomorrah didn't see no fury. Like the fury I'm about to pour on your sorry heads. Are you like, can you imagine them saying, show us a sign? Oh. Even Peter thought that was stupid, and he was a moron. After all, our ancestors ate manna while they journeyed through the wilderness. The scripture says that Moses gave them bread from, from heaven to eat. They did. No, no. I want, a, I want a miracle like manna. Why? Manna was every day. I got tangible benefit from God every day. I want a little something, something every day, Jesus. Like, come on. Keep it coming. How much you want? More. That's what I want. I want more. You give me more, and then I'll believe in you. How much more? I don't know, just more. More than what I got now. That's what I want. More than what I got now. Then more than what I got tomorrow is what I want the day after tomorrow. That's what I want. I just want more. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, Moses didn't give you bread from heaven. My dad did. Drop the mic. Boom. That's my dad. That wasn't Moses. My father did. Now he offers you true bread from heaven. The true bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, give us that bread every day. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. I'm the bread. I'm the bread. You believe in me, you'll never be hungry. You believe in me, you'll never be thirsty. Paul figured this out. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul says in verse 12, I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it's with a full stomach or an empty stomach, with plenty or with little. For I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. That verse that the athletes put on their shoes, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, that doesn't mean God can help you score touchdowns. What it means is your identity isn't tied to your touchdowns. That Philippians 4.13 says, I'm cool when I lose. My identity was never tied to my performance. My identity isn't wrapped up in the amount of money in my bank or how much I'll retire in, whether or not I own or I rent. My identity is not tied up in what my wife or my spouse thinks of me or my kids. Or my identity is not connected to what they do with their life. I know that even if cancer comes, God knew this was coming, and I'm not, I'm not worried 
Because I know he saw this coming and has already written this into the story of my life. And I know that my life ends with his glory and my good. That's what I know. And it's because I believe in God that if I have a little bit, I'm cool. If I have a lot of bit, I'm cool. Cancer, I'm cool. Healthy living, I'm cool. Good or bad, bro, I don't freak out. Why? Because I can take it. All things. Why? Through Christ. Why? Because I believe in him. It ain't money I believe in. It ain't my job. It ain't my boss. It ain't the market. It ain't real estate. These things, I don't believe in these things. These things are a tool to be leveraged for the glory of God and the good of others. Less tools, fine. But whatever tools I got will still be leveraged for the exact same thing. The glory of God and the good of others. Satan, freaking bring it. I ain't challenging him, by the way, for the record. I'm just saying. I ain't getting cocky. That's all Paul's saying. That's what Jesus says. Those who figure out that I'm the bread of life, you're not going to be hungry. You're not going to keep chasing them carrots on sticks anymore. Skip down to verse 41. Then the people began to murmur, I'm the because he had said, I'm the bread that came from heaven. How can he say this? We know who his mom and dad are, it says. Skipping down to verse 47, I tell you the truth, Jesus said, anyone who believes has eternal life. Yes, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, but they all died. The thing you're asking for isn't going to help you. They still died in the wilderness. They got exactly what they asked for from God and still died in disbelief. So even if I gave you what you asked for, it wouldn't be giving you what you actually needed. You know why he brought up manna? Because they brought it up. Anyone who eats, verse 50, the bread from heaven, however, will never die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will live forever. And this bread which I offer the world uh, so that they may live is my flesh. And the people began arguing with each other about what he meant. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So now he's just being straight up. This is that, that all right. I'm going Hey, slow boy. I ain't slow. I'm fast. Look. Okay, slow boy. So Jesus said, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you, can have no, you, you cannot have eternal life within you. But anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise that person at the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Now, do you know why I didn't want to talk about this part of the sermon? It's really awkward and uncomfortable because the law of Moses forbade to eat, to drink blood, and definitely cannibalism was off the menu. You couldn't eat that. I mean, like, you can't eat pork, can't eat shrimp. You definitely can't eat people. <laughs> Verse 56, I am the true bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will not die as your ancestors did, even though they ate the manna, but will live forever. He said these things while he was teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. And many of his disciples said, this is very hard to understand. How can anyone accept it? Jesus was aware that his disciples were complaining, and he said to them, does this offend you? Does this offend you? Now he goes on in the verses that I skipped, and if you're in a life group, please read this entire chapter before you guys. I'm really excited, by the way, about the questions you guys are going to be going over in life group. And if you're not in a life group here at Grace Church, it's a huge part of your spiritual development and your ability to connect with other followers of Jesus and make friends who've got your back spiritually speaking, people you can depend on who help you out. But I'm really excited about that. But in the questions that he was following, Jesus makes it more and more clear what he meant by, and this wasn't a foreign concept to them. In the scriptures, it's in Joel where, in Joel chapter 2, God says, I promise to give you back the years that the locust has eaten. So the idea that something ate something else that became a part of them was not a metaphor that Jews were unfamiliar with. In fact, Paul uses this metaphor of eating something that becomes a part of who you are later on in his writings when he says, the teachings that I give you, this teaching I'm giving to you is more like meat. You've got to be spiritually mature and you've got to be a grown-up to eat this, but some of the teaching that I give you is like milk. And babies drink milk. So he was using the idea of something I'm giving you becoming a part of who you are. And what he was saying is when you eat food, it actually is metabolized by your body and becomes a part of you. And Jesus is saying, unless me and my agenda, until my priorities become your priorities, 
until my identity shapes your identity and you find your identity and my identity. Until that happens, you have nothing to do with me. You're a poser. You're fake. You're a manipulator of the things of God. Does this offend you? And people started leaving when they started getting what he was actually saying. As long as you are coming to me for what I bring to you, you are not a part of me. Because until you get to the place where you're willing to say, God, all of me is for all of you, you have none of me. Because I gave all I have for all of you. He went first, so he's not asking anything from us that he wasn't willing to do. But nobody comes to Jesus with anything else in their hand. No one. Does this offend you? What if following Jesus meant you stayed single? What if following Jesus meant that you didn't get to retire, but that you always had to have a part-time job because you were so leveraged for God's kingdom purposes financially? What if? What if to be obedient to God's Holy Spirit, you became so radically generous that it negatively impacted the stand, your quality of living? What if it meant you switched careers? What if it meant you moved? What if it meant you downsized? What if it meant you sold an investment property? You see what I'm saying? Because I'm telling you, that is exactly what it means. That is what it means. 100% of me, my time, my money, my life, my goals is at God's disposal. Anything less than that, Jesus says, you don't have me until you have all of me and I have all of you. Does this offend you? At this point, many of his disciples, I'm skipping down to verse 66, turned away and deserted him. Then Jesus turned to the 12 and asked, are you also going to leave? Simon Peter replied, and he said some crazy things, but he was right on the money with this one. Lord, to whom would we go? What else is there worth living our lives for? What other agenda could be greater, could be more worth me letting go of my agenda than yours? What am I going to give my life to? that will have more eternal impact than you. 30 years after you're dead, nobody's going to give a rat's butt you ever lived. True? We're wise to recognize that now and leverage the time we have left for things that outlive us. Namely, others having a chance to know and to follow Jesus and spend eternity with him too. You ain't going to be in an eternity for five seconds before you realized how much of what you had, you blew. Me too. So we're going to wrap this up by asking a couple of questions. How are you right now limiting God in your life? What insurmountable mountain are you facing that you've given up on? God over. He can't. And what if, for God to be involved, you had to completely give over your agenda and that problem to him? For, I didn't say that sentence right. But what if to follow Jesus meant that whatever it is you're facing doesn't end up the way you want it to? Are you still willing to follow Jesus? In your prayer over whatever it is you're desperately seeking God to do, could you pray, not my will be done, but yours? Just give me the strength to make it through. Because if you can pray that, you're praying right. The more we find out about Jesus, the more we are divided into two camps. Those who fully surrender to God every area of their life, and as they learn more of who Jesus is and what he wants, grows in their ability to yield more and more of their life to God and his kingdom purposes. And then there are those who are in the other camp, who the more they find out about Jesus and what it actually means to follow Jesus, start 
keeping a safer distance from him and back off to a safe and manageable distance in their relationship with God. And what I'm saying on the authority of Jesus, it's because you have no relationship with God that you would do that. Because those who have truly come to the place where they have gone all in in their relationship with God, those who truly know God and have felt God speak to them and have yielded and then seen what God did, want that again. They see the value and leverage for the glory. They understand that when I give up my agenda to be content with life and live for God and his agenda, the benefit of that is my ability to be content in life, even if it means I have little or I have much. I have a nice home or I'm homeless. If I knew I got in that position because I was following God, I'm cool. Where are you at in your relationship with God? I ask you to judge your own heart, and I'm going to ask you to bow your head and give you the chance to do that. If you would, please pray with me. God, I'm thankful that you're willing to have the tough conversation with us, that, that you love us too much to allow us to keep playing a religious game. And the truth is, God, just like you know then, I know you know now who in this congregation today is simply playing a stupid game, who takes their faith seriously and who doesn't. God, I ask that you would impress on each one of our hearts where we stand on that continuum, on that line. Do I want God solely for what God can do for me, yes or no? To what degree is my relationship with God dependent on how it benefits my life? And I want you to talk to God about that right now. God, i got to be honest. I've been talking to you as if you live from my glory and my good. And I have not spent much time talking to you about your glory and your good. And I'm sorry. Some of us are distant from God because we don't feel like we've checked enough box. We haven't done enough of the works of God. And you need to just quit that. You're never going to do enough works for God. The only work that God will accept from you is humility. Jesus, I want to put you and your agenda in the center of me and my life to drive my agenda. Forgive me for my disobedience and my selfishness. Thank you for taking the punishment for those sins. Thank you for your resurrection, which gives me a new shot at life because you had a new shot at life. Give me that. I'm all over it. Wipe my slate clean, set a new chart, chart a new course, set a new direction. Just point my face in the right direction, God, and I'll chase after it. And when I get distracted, redirect me. Make that your prayer. God, be pleased by the attitude and direction of our heart. I pray and I ask this in the name of your son, Jesus, and for your glory. We pray and say, amen.